welcome to The Climate Realist. Here, we'll talk about realistic and achievable things you can do to help with climate change. Personally, I believe that the Earth's climate is changing in a major way and that most of it is human-caused. If you are skeptical, please listen anyway. I respect your point of view, and this podcast may help you to understand what all the fuss is about. At the very least, you'll hear a lot of ways to save money. This week, we're going to talk about Canada's new clean electricity regulations. In August, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guibault, announced some new proposed electricity regulations. These are not finalized yet. The unofficial version that was sent out for study is long and dense and full of calculations, tables, formulas, and regulations. Not a fun read unless you're into such things. Fortunately for you, I am into reading such things, so I read it cover to cover. I'll give you the climate realist summary of what it's all about. This is quite a comprehensive document that covers the subject in considerable depth and breadth. So let's give some credit to the authors of these documents. Having said that, whether it is realistic or not is another question. This podcast is called The Climate Realist for a reason. So let's examine just how realistic the plan is to decarbonize our grid by the year 2035. Since we're already more than halfway through 2023, 2035 is pretty much just a decade away. Even if we started yesterday, doing a project of this magnitude within a decade seems pretty unlikely. In the big scheme of things, this may be impractical because it relies on technologies that are either barely available or not available at all at the necessary scale and efficiency. Assuming technology will get better is reasonable, but not in a 10-year time frame. High efficiency carbon capture and storage and small modular nuclear may be coming and they may be improving, but to have it all designed, built in place and tested and running smoothly by 2035 is a lot to ask. This document directly defines hydrogen as being a fossil fuel. It makes no mention of green hydrogen, which is produced by electrolysis, as being different from hydrogen produced from fossil fuel sources. This appears to be a way of stopping hydrogen from being used at all. But wasn't it just a year and a half ago that the Chancellor of Germany visited us looking for natural gas and our Prime Minister pointed them in the direction of hydrogen that we could export instead. Is this the same country? On the bright side, the document explicitly states that there will be an effective exemption for remote Indigenous communities that are not connected to the grid. Kudos to the authors for figuring this out. Please listen to my other podcast on tiny modular nuclear power plants and how these could be used to improve things for our remote Indigenous communities. Another takeaway from the document is that it expects that Canadian electricity consumption will pretty much double by the year 2050. It doesn't describe how provinces like BC, that are currently running on nearly 100% clean hydro, can double capacity without building large dams and more infrastructure. The Columbia River system It's already pretty much dammed from end to end, both in Canada and the United States. 
the Fraser River system and its tributaries aren't currently dammed or harnessed for hydroelectricity, but doing so would have huge environmental impacts. Just the negotiations with First Nations would probably take longer than from now to 2035. We can't just slap a dam on a river and flood hundreds of square miles of their traditional territory without them having a say in it. The document does say that carbon pricing on its own is not enough, so that's a refreshing change. Since over 80% of Canada's electrical grid is already from clean or renewable sources like hydro and nuclear, this will be relatively easy to achieve in some provinces. But the proposal was not well received by many in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Both Alberta and Saskatchewan essentially condemned the proposed regulations and said that they would not take part. So why is this? Why can't Alberta and Saskatchewan just have clean electricity? Both of these provinces had been burning coal to generate electricity up until very recently, and they've now switched the plants over to run on natural gas. When an investor builds a power plant, they expect it to run for 40 years or more. There is likely no business case for creating power plants that will be outlawed very soon. Now, natural gas, if you weren't aware, has approximately 50% of the CO2 output for a given unit of electricity compared to oil or coal. So a natural gas burning power plant is already much greener than many of the alternatives. It's pretty easy for Ontario or BC or Quebec to use clean electricity because they already have large established hydro or nuclear facilities. But Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick do not have clean sources at the necessary scale. So why don't they just use solar and wind power? Well, both solar and wind have intermittency problems where they don't produce the same amount of power all the time. So even having 100% of the daytime electricity supplied by solar still leaves a good chunk of the day where there's no solar energy available. To maintain a stable power grid, you need other sources of power for baseline load like nuclear, or something called peaker plants that kick in only when renewable sources of energy have disappeared temporarily. But all of this doesn't exist in Alberta. It has gas-fired power plants. It does intend to move in the direction of small modular nuclear, along with sensibly designed natural gas with carbon capture and storage. So even though this plan was cooked up in Ottawa, it puts most of the heavy lifting onto Saskatchewan and Alberta. Now there are sections of the proposed regulations that allow for fossil fuels to be burned to generate power. They essentially say that you can create electricity from fossil fuels as long as you capture almost all of the carbon output from the unit. The figures in the regulations are 30, or in some cases 40 tons of carbon dioxide per gigawatt hour of power. Well, 30 or 40 tons seems like a lot, but it's only a tiny portion of the amount of CO2 normally created when burning a fossil fuel. Carbon capture and storage mostly operates at about 90% efficiency nowadays. Jumping to 95% is a big, big leap. To achieve 95% efficiency might sound good on paper, but it's right at the cutting edge of what's possible with 
today's technologies. Was 30 tons the right figure? Should it have been 40? Should it have been 50 tons per gigawatt hour? To be fair, the document does talk about how it goes about setting this limit. Anywhere from 0 to 100 tons was considered. 0 tons would effectively ban all use of fossil fuels for electricity. 100 tons would probably encourage low efficiency carbon capture and storage. Mandating a 30 ton per gigawatt hour limit seems to be pushing for something unrealistic. It's kind of like if kids came home from a math test where they'd achieved 92% and the parents go, oh, that's completely unacceptable. You must get 95% or greater or else. And then if the kids get 95% on the math exam, you insist on them getting 95% on English and socials and all the other subjects. A little much to ask unless all your children are brainiacs. The odd thing about carbon capture and storage in Canada is that a lot of the proposals involve capturing the CO2 and then putting it back into the ground, not just for storage, but to force more oil and gas out of the existing wells. Yes, that's right. Carbon capture and storage, in Minister Guibault's own definition, includes using it to generate more oil. But strangely, the document is silent on using carbon capture and storage to generate natural gas, which is what these power plants would be running on. The regulations do mention geological sites in which CO2 is injected into deep saline reservoirs, but it also mentions its use for enhanced oil recovery. So we're using carbon capture and storage to force more oil out of the ground? Who dreamed that up? What do they think is going to happen with the oil they recover using this method? You can't burn it. Oh wait, it's a scope 3 emission, which means that we can gleefully ship it to somewhere outside of our borders and it doesn't count against our carbon budget. Wow, this is just plain goofy. On the other hand, it is kind of pragmatic, and it does fit within our international agreements. So we'll cut them a bit of slack here. The proposed regulations describe a prescribed life for a power plant that uses fossil fuels to be 20 years. It's pretty hard to picture investors that are going to build a power plant that would normally run for 40 years or more, and then have it shut down by a government regulation within 20 years, or by December 31st, 2034, as defined in the regulations. The proposed regulations indirectly allow for so-called peaker plants to be used when renewable sources aren't available, but it doesn't seem to have a very good definition of when and how these peaker plants can be run. Do they run only when the sun goes behind a cloud? Do they run only at night? Do they run in the winter when the amount of sunlight is low and the solar panels may be covered in snow? No. The proposed regulations only allow a peaker plant to run 450 hours per year and emit no more than 150 tons of CO2 per year. 450 hours a year is like operating for about 19 days per year. So the renewables are supposed to make up the remaining 346 days per year? This is not even remotely possible. The sun is only visible for something like 12 hours a day, even at the best of times, and certainly less in the winter. 
Have these people not been living in Canada? So how about wind? There'll be lots of times where the wind is either not available strong enough to run the turbines or is so strong that they have to shut down the turbines for safety purposes. For a natural gas power plant to run for any longer than 450 hours, it's required to use carbon capture and storage. So the proposed regulations don't allow for any realistic use of natural gas for peaker plants. So who came up with these regulations anyway? It sure the heck wasn't anybody from Alberta or Saskatchewan. Sounds like it was dreamed up in a place where it's easy to be carbon neutral in the first place. But all the really heavy lifting is left to the prairie and Atlantic provinces. Is this fair? Is this even possible? If the federal government really wants to help, they could put billions of dollars into developing small modular nuclear power plants. These could supply Alberta and Saskatchewan and other areas of Canada with green electricity. Canada has done this before. Our can-do reactors, or designs based on them, provide a lot of the nuclear energy in Ontario. And this technology was exported around the world to several countries. It's a well-proven but dated design. I'll have future podcasts on small modular nuclear power plants. Another thing that would be helpful is for our federal government to fund research on carbon capture and storage that does this without generating more oil. As described in one of my other podcast episodes about coal, it would be the ultimate carbon capture and storage medium. Just take the coal that's nearly pure carbon in the first place and just leave it exactly where it is. And leave the oil exactly where it is. There's several valid uses of fossil fuels that will be extremely difficult to replace. For example, aircraft fuel. I'll do another podcast on this subject, but suffice it to say that you're not going to take a transatlantic airliner powered by batteries anytime soon. The energy density is orders of magnitude too small. The document does cover some changes to the electrical grid from moving power from one province to another or one area to another but it doesn't seem to give realistic timeframes for any of this work. Just as an example, BC Hydro has been working on a second power line to the area where I live. This one power line serves tens of thousands of people. If a single power line built on wood going through rough terrain would be damaged in a forest fire or otherwise, our entire area could be without power for weeks. This was recognized as a high priority at least 12 years ago, and the utility has been studying it ever since. Not a shovel has been put on the ground, and it will probably be something like 20 years from the start of the discussions to when there's a backup power line built to our community. BC Hydro's Site C dam has been dragging on for pretty much 20 years and is still not producing power. How are we supposed to decarbonize our entire electrical grid in 12 years when we can't even build a single power dam. This is one of the subjects where a few people could do an immense amount of good. The document's currently at an unofficial level and is essentially out for review. If you have the education, background, and experience and are placed so that you can contribute to the review of the document, dedicating the next six months of your life to getting this document right would be a fantastic contribution to helping with climate change.
Now that's making a difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Climate Realist.